And what I began to realize was there was like passion, mindset, and time. If we can find that thing that that child is passionate about, then they show up as a totally different learner. Then we can work on their mindset. And then we can get them to take ownership and go really deep with their learning. And then we can get them to use their time to, to mastery. This week's guest is Julia Black. She's at the forefront of innovation and education, designing an educational approach that unleashes the talent and unlocks passion and true potential of every child. As the founder and CEO of Explorium, Julia's lights-on methodology is changing the way we think about education. Julia explains that when becoming a mother, the values of her own mother and her first daughter starting school created an inner conflict that led her to pivot away from filmmaking to focus on education reform. She discusses how the serendipity of creating a circus as a school fundraiser opened her eyes to the potential of all children, unleashed her boldness to confront the educational status quo, research innovations in education to create a vision to disrupt educational norms. Starting with a creative learning centre in a pub, Julia describes why having a clear vision enabled her to thrive on risk-taking, ambiguity and trusting that events would fall into place. Julia explains how she partnered with her father to transform her future vision into a social business reality. She breaks down the methodology and the impact Lights On is having on children and parents alike. Julia also reflects on why, in the time of COVID, parents can now witness their children's disconnection from learning and the mental health impact it's having, and why Lights On provides the path forward for education. I hope you enjoy the vision, vitality and unfolding story of Julia Black. So maybe that's a, a good point to pivot to education and talk about your experience of moving away from filmmaking into education and what happened with your daughter. So I was now at this stage, I was pregnant with my daughter and, and I was actually making a film and I was nominated for the BAFTA and the Grierson. So again, in my mind, it's like, okay, that big drama didn't happen, but I'm there. And then of by course- the way, By the way, was your father saying at this point, you found your purpose? No, and but he never was really sort of saying that I needed to. I think it was me, but he was very, he was excited by it, by me using filmmaking to explore these issues for sure. But so when obviously I became a mum, you know, that again, we're talking about identity, that started shifting because I had been making those films, you know, with young mental health, spending time with families, with children who were as young as eight saying that they wanted to kill themselves sometimes, you know, and the, the observational films that I did meant I was hanging out with these families. And I just had to look at and think, why would I go away from my own family and, and, you know, have someone else look after that. And that's when I think the values of my mum, you know, my mum being there for us really kind of came in. So I began to sort of really experience that kind of on the paradox almost that here I was with this massive purpose, but here I am as a mum, you know, and kind of that began to come into conflict for me. So when my daughter started school, four years old, just four, because she's in summer born, I began to, I guess, experience... And she was an early reader, so she didn't have the dys dyslexic gene. And interestingly enough, I began to think, oh my goodness, she might have the naughty gene because at nursery, when she was three, I picked her up one day and the teacher said, Julie, we need to talk. And I was like, oh dear, okay. And because um, she was so strong-willed, is still very strong-willed. And they said, yes, me was really defiant today. You know, we were walking and she just started running towards the road and she just looked at us when we were calling her because they were, they were obviously panicked. And she just looked back at us and smiled and kept running. And I just thought, okay, this is where they kind of tell me that this is really isn't acceptable. And 
And the manager, Claire, and I just love her for it. She just said, I think we need to teach her to read. I think she's bored. And it was just amazing because they did start teaching her to read age three and all of that stopped. And then, of course, when she went to school, the brakes got put on hold. And so I began to sort of see this like angry, this angry, angry kid come out of school. And obviously being the change maker, it's like, well, I'm not going to accept that. That can't be. And, and so I just started, I phoned the county council, the local authority. And I just said, look, my daughter's only four. This isn't going to work for her. Is there a way to have her just do part-time at school? She wants to be there, but it's just not going to work. And they said, yeah, it's called flexi-schooling. And again, it was like, I, I give him the name of Simon. I don't know if that was his name, but you know, those pivotal moments where you just have a conversation with someone and you're not expecting the outcome. And I expected to have to fight for this. And he just said, it's possible. It's just down to the discretion of the head teacher. And that really began my journey and just kind of like, oh, we don't have to accept when school isn't working out for our children. And actually we can begin to flex it. So that's what we did. We flexi-schooled. And then I just got more and more involved in the school, trying to solve the problem. But then the change maker in me, I guess, was like, well, if I'm trying to solve it for my daughter, I may as well solve it for all the other 105 kids in the school. And really where, and so I became a governor and I was that voice in the room, you know, that was always pushing for change. You know, the raised eyebrows would go up. Julia, it's not what we do. It's not how we do things. You don't know. You're not a teacher. And then I kind of found myself, and I know one of the things, you know, you talk about, you know, that sort of serendipitous moment. I was leaving school, pick up, pick up time. And one of the mums, because I'd moved out of Bristol, so I was relatively new to the area. One of the mums said, are you going to join the, come to the PTA meeting tonight? And that's my idea of like a nightmare, right? To go to a committee style kind of meeting and sit there and discuss like, you know, cake sales and things like that anyway I, she said oh please it'll be really you know good if you came so anyway I did go and I walked out ending up being like the vice chair and <laughs> and, then, and then nine months later the vice the chair quit and I found myself deciding whether I was going to be chair or not and I remember thinking like no way of course I'm not going to be chair I'm not you know that's not the vision I've got for myself and then I just started tuning in really to what could I do if I was? What changes as a governor and a chair? So I knew the school well. What could be possible if I took on this role? And that was really then where we, it was life changing. And again, one of the things I remember as a governor, I said to my dad, should I do it? It's politics. And it's like, oh, it's going to be frustrating. He said, Julia, you never know where these things will lead you. Right? So I'm chair of the PTA now, my horror. And we had the first kind of meeting and the idea of doing a village fate was just not something I was going to do. And, and this was because for the past, all my life, my mum has been doing the village fates, right? <laughs> and so I had this really strong kind of, no, I was not going down this line, being the person that runs, runs the school fate. And cut a long story short, basically... The head teacher asked us to employ a cir- uh, hire in a circus as a fundraiser. And I looked into that and it was going to cost us like £7,000 just to hire them in. And they would kind of tokenistically, you know, get the children involved. And I just thought, I oh, know, we're not doing that. We're not spending 7000 The children are going to be the circus. And it was just 
that to me is when I really started just tapping into this is it, that little nine-year-old. Okay, I'm starting. Julia, you're, you're now beginning to kind of do what you do well. You're bold. And then I met a mother had joined who I didn't know, who I knew, all I knew was that she had some juggling skills and some drama skills. So I just went up to her and said, let's do the circus. We will train the children. Will you do it with me? And she said, yes. And then another mother heard who used to turn like clubs into like these incredible, like Ministry of Sound, you know, she would transform an empty room into these incredible spaces. And she said, I hear you're doing a circus I want to be in. And that was really it. And for the next year, we trained the children. And it was one of those moments where I started tuning in to the clarity of having a vision and never once beginning to doubt that we wouldn't meet that vision. And we met with the director of Circa Media, um, director of education, because I now got, I think I got like eight grand in grants to be able to put this on. So not only were we now going to do the circus, but it was going to be big. And I remember him sitting there and he said, so let me get this straight. There was the three of us as mums. You are going to put on this circus in a big top and with a capacity of like 300 or more people that are going to come to it. And you're going to have trapeze and you're going to have slack wire and all of this. And you've never, ever done anything like this before. And, and we just all looked at each other and laughed and said, no, and yes, we're going to do it. And he just said, you're crazy. But, you know, fast forward to the opening night, sitting there backstage with this sense of like awe almost of what we had just pulled off as a community of parents because we were all volunteers and we had just pulled off all 106 children showed up they went into that ring, they performed, and the community of parents had never seen anything like it. And it really was that sense of awe of like, wow, look at what we can do. And that to me was like, okay, I'm hooked. Now I know what it means to be Julia. Because <laughs> it is interesting that you, I mean, you mentioned the serendipity. It's fascinating that when you embrace the, similar to a moment you described with your father in the swing, you took that jump. You said, right, we're going to do this with no sense of how you're going to do it. But from that moment, people came to you. You know, the woman from the doing Ministry of Sound, which is a famous club in London in the 1990s and 2000s. You know, what are the chances you would think of something, finding the resources, the people, the talent, the experience to actually do something, as you say, something very, very bold. So I think it is evidence of... of embracing ambiguity and uncertainty and just taking it and going down that road less traveled. And I thrive in that environment. Like I don't need to know the how. In fact, if I, uh, if I, anyone tries to get me to know, sort of talk about the how, I very, very quickly resist, you know, I'm learning much more. It's just like, oh no, you know, so for me, the thing I think I grew up taking risks. So it's very familiar to me to not have the answers, really knowing that yes, we don't need the roadmap but things will come into place. And that is really how I guess when I look back at my life, it's just like all the things that happened, even the sort of the door closing on the filmmaking was because it's like, no, Julia, this isn't, this isn't what you're meant to do. You're meant to do something else. And, and I remember really, I, I think that's just how I live my life now. It's just like, right, get really clear on that vision and then the right steps will unfold. So this was the trigger that started your uh, bespoke educational platform that you call Lights On, that I believe is all based around the, uh, the concept of empowering parents. And when you empower parents, they empower the children and you create a whole family transformation. So could you 
explain how you initiated that and how you've sort of scaled it? Because going from just a circus as a replacement for the school fate is one thing, but then to take it to the next level is also a bold vision. Yeah, and I think really it was a process of of snowballing. It was like we had got in the school community, we won an award for changing the life of the school. We'd got all this money in. It got bigger and bolder and I outgrew the school. And then, you know, we took this big event into the woods and we, you know, and and I just think I just at this stage was just just beginning to tap into, right, this is what I can do. And then we had a chance to go as a family Canada on a family adventure and I began to see what happened to my children when they came out of the school environment and they began to really kind of flourish really kind of just learn and given the fact that a lot of the work I'd been doing was problem solving around my daughter keeping you know from being bored and I think that was when I began to sort of really react against those voices that had been telling me you don't know Julia you're not a teacher it's not how we do things and I remember kind of almost exclaiming out loud it might not be how we do things, but it's how I'm going to do things. And so I really spent that time in Canada researching and looking at the most innovative thinking in education and exploring how I could use my boldness, my you know desire to take risks and, and love of uncertainty, how I could use that to disrupt education. Still very, very naive at this point. And then when we came back to, it, again, one of those things like you're talking about, even when I was in Canada and Vancouver, I got emails from people in England who had said, I hear you're going doing this. And it was like, how have you heard I'm doing this? Because I hadn't even announced it. And one of those people is still with me today, Corinne. And she just said, I love what you're doing. When you get back to England, can we meet? And But when I arrived back in England, I was just here. People were contacting me saying, I hear you're going to set up something. So it was almost like this kind of just this opening of me exclaiming, it might not be how we do things, but I'm going to do it. And then seeking answers as to, well, who is the most innovative thinking out there right now? I tend to always look forward rather than back. What has come before? What is coming? And so I ended up setting up a creative learning center. <laughs> and <laughs> we didn't have a place, but we started in a skittle alley of a pub. People were telling me, Julia, you're not ready. You need another year in planning. Two weeks before we were going to start, we had no place to host our first session. And I just... I just believed it was going to happen. So we started in the Skittle Alley of a pub, then the old school. Skittle Alley. A Skittle Alley of a pub. And, you know, we literally had to bring all our stuff in and clear it away at the of the day. And we had 22 children sign up with us with no, all through, people had just heard this was happening. And then the old school in my village came up for sale. And, you know, I managed to convince this parent who had known me from the circus, who was now a director of, of Explorium, to buy it. And so now here we were just six weeks in to this bold vision of disrupting education in an old school, you know, with children coming to us. And Explorium is the name of your business, the name yeah. of the organization that runs it. That you yeah. Okay. Um, and, and really, I set that up with my dad. And it was one of those moments as well that I think, because I do look back and as, you know, he did always believe I was going to be this social entrepreneur. And we would have these annoying conversations and we were sort of sitting around the table having this heated discussion. And I just suddenly kind of said, listen to me. And I presented this vision and he just sat back in his chair and is like, okay, if I put in this amount of money, 
and you put in that amount of money and, it, and we just suddenly formed the business there and then. And what was exciting was, I guess, you know, with Lights On being the name, suddenly seeing my dad's lights going on. So maybe when you asked, like, did my dad believe I'd found my purpose? I think in that moment he knew, he knew I had. And anyway, so four years we had that center and I ended up on a school site. So schools started sending children to us. Again, all of this just snowballing without any real kind of sense of us seeking, you know, the collaborations. And could you explain what you were doing differently that was resulting in schools sending children to you? I guess I was trying to make learning as real as possible. And so it's one thing for us all to sort of say schools need to change and we look at all the research, but it's a totally different thing to start trying to change it. And that first day in the Skitlali, my sister had come over from Australia with her son who has difficulty, you know, um, learning in a, you know, uh, classroom setting. And it was a complete and utter disaster. So it was that thing of like, oh shit, what have I done? But so I was just kind of tweaking and changing things. Like how do we get children come in our space and we're not pulling them or pushing them to learn? How do we get them to own their learning? So it was really kind of exploring, making learning as real as possible and finding that thing that the children would own, 100% own their learning. So a bit like I was talking about at school for me, I didn't really ever learn, own it. And what I began to realize was there was like passion, mindset and time. If we can find that thing that that child is passionate about, then they show up as a totally different learner. Okay. And then, then we can work on their mindset. And then we can get them to take ownership and go really deep with their learning. And then we can get them to use their time to, to mastery deep into that thing that they were born to explore and discover. So really projects we were doing, giving a brief and then children delivering a tangible outcome to that brief. Doesn't that put pressure on resources, having individual being very individual to the child because no child's passions and mindsets are going to be the same. So how do you manage? The beautiful thing about it is, is that you just need one brief and then you have some enough structure in place. And this is what I've been working out over the sort of four years to get to the framework lights on how much structure, but one brief, 30 children in a classroom setting, for example, and we did work with, you know, classrooms, can come at that brief and deliver on it differently. And that's the key. We move from competitive learning, which is all like, you've all got to do this drawing of this, you know, fruit bowl, or you've all got to write, you know, this, you know, story, which starts like this. And you move to a more collaborative way of learning. And what is amazing when you do that is that that brief with the flexibility for children to answer and deliver on it, results in outcomes that you will never get to if you're more prescriptive about what children need to do. I'd expect that the children are inspired by each other as well. Hugely inspired by each other and frustrated by each other, which is good. A lot lot of the coaching I do for parents is to allow those emotions of frustration and anger to to ride through. You pointed out um, earlier when it was like, you know, we hover around and when our kids start crying, we stop the point of learning which is what my dad did so well. He didn't, he just let me get angry and frustrated and and cry and give up, but he would come back. So Lights On has really become the framework now where we coach parents to use it, to learn to think differently in their homes, 
to learn to find that thing. I call it a switch. That, that switch that, a, you know, will get a child's learning with their lights on. And, you know, that really will empower them to go, this is who I am. This is who I was born to be. Let me learn in this way. And engineers, makers, artists, you know, wordsmiths, um, performers, athletes, and and then begin to, what I talk about is get their old school thinking out of the way, which is really actually quite difficult, and replace it with absolute belief that their children are capable of achieving extraordinary outcomes. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. How can it scale? So that it can scale by it's online. And, and I, I think where I'm excited now is we have got, so we've been online for three years because we ended up based on a school site. And that's what, that was the question. It's like, this isn't scalable. So I kind of faced massive, massive failure at that point. And also what I saw was the scale of the problem. You know, this was like, you know, this was a secondary school site. This is like children walking, sleepwalking, sleepwalking through their best years to grow their brains. So I, you know, I just thought, right, we have to have a different model. And the beautiful thing now about being online and being some years into our academy, our Lights On Academy, is that we now have the evidence that parents, absolutely with no training as educational professionals, can take our framework and they can get their children to really start to become incredible learners, ages seven, nine, 11, you know, whatever their age, but also in my head and, and a part of it is down on paper. I've got the blueprint for the schools too. And the re- it can scale because it's actually really simple. It's so simple. And I think we've just kind of got caught up in this big education is one of the biggest industries in the world. We've made it. We've kind of created these problems that actually don't need to really be problems. And it can be really simple. What is it you were born to explore and discover? And when we can get children back into that space to reconnect with that, if they've lost it, then their whole belief about what they can do changes. And that's really the world I envisage. It's just that everyone has the right to learn in their own unique way. And then coming back to that conversation about identity, we're all authentically ourselves. We're all brave enough to face somebody who thinks differently without, our, without giving away what we believe, but meeting them there. For parents to be able to do that, to allow their children to grow up without fear, anger, and frustration is, is incredibly empowering. And I'm sure <laughs> during the lockdown, when people have been doing homeschooling, your methodology would have been most welcome and probably easy, more easy to embrace than the, the system that people have been dealing with, which has probably been creating more frustration and anger. I've heard so many stories of, of parents just saying, this is a nightmare, you know, trying to balance work the children's sort of uh, demands, them feeling frustrated, them feeling sort of out of kilter because they're not in their normal environment. It's ripe now as the time is now for what you're actually proposing and building. And I think what feels really exciting is now this is the future I see, right? And now people get it. You know, people before, they were like, well, what's Zoom? What do you mean you do it like this? You know, they didn't get it. And now it's just like, hey, we're just meeting. We've got group coaching in a Zoom room. We're going to coach you. You know, you're going to be looking at your mindset. So everybody knows about mindset now. And we take it to the whole other level, the importance of passion and purpose. But more importantly, the future has just collapsed into our now. And what parents are seeing is they are seeing what I saw, which was, wow, children wholesale in their millions are switching off and disconnecting from learning. And that's what parents are seeing. 
if you can't get your children to use this time to do and explore things that they want to explore, then they've lost that connection to who they are. So we need to start there. It's a mental health issue. It very, very quickly, when a child disconnects from being able to learn, becomes a mental health issue. It's when we get anxiety, depression, school refusal. That's when we start seeking diagnoses. Like, what's wrong with my child? Nothing. Yeah, they just have become disconnected with learning. They maybe think differently, but that's a gift. So I think it's exciting. And from a business perspective, a social business perspective, yeah, we are doing better than we've ever done. And I think for me, from a mindset and point of view of being that social entrepreneur, keep having, you know, my dad's no longer around, but I was talking to him yesterday going, oh my God, dad, you knew it. You knew that I could do this and I'm here doing it. But it's that sense of, I think for me, I got that kind of real thing of, there has never been a better alignment in the universe that is saying, Julia, you found your purpose. What more do you need now to get this widespread changing and disrupting education? We're going to close all the schools around the world, right? I think 85 <laughs> countries around the world have been closed. Okay, we're going to spotlight for parents to see that their children are so disconnected from learning that they don't care about their education even the high achievers. And then we're going to make the parents feel so desperate that, you know, that they really have to seek solutions. So I kind of sort of feel from, you know, from my point of view, in terms of alignment of everything, it's like, this is what we've been leading up to, to have that solution that actually is relatively simple. And within three days, we are helping parents who come into our, we set up an emergency virtual creative learning space. And they are just saying like, oh my goodness, wow, these are the best three days I've had since lockdown. Oh my goodness, this was just 20 pounds and it is like diamonds and gold. Thank you. I mean, just getting messages every day with the free video trainings. Thank you, you know, for, you know, empowering them. Can people access this internationally? That's why it's so scalable. I mean, we've got families from Nigeria who've joined us, families from America, from Italy, you know, predominantly at the moment. And the UK, but it's just because that's where we've been marketing it. But the beautiful thing about it being online, and I guess where I am in terms of my journey as a social entrepreneur is I'm priming in now. It's just like, you know what? And the filmmaking career was the thing that set me up for this, which is why that was important in my kind of story, my unfolding narrative of my own life, because I know that I can get into this conversation and empower people to see it differently. But not from a point of view of just like talking about it, but from a point of view of do it, try it and see it. And that to me is like where I feel just so almost now, and and this probably will sound a bit morbid, but if I now leave, right, (laughs) this planet, Mm -hmm. it's in process, it's done. And and that is what is a really exciting place to be. Cool. Okay, if people want to find it, and discover it? Where do they go? So go to explorium.co.uk and all of our programs on there, of which we have various different ones you can join, all outlined there. But more importantly, probably come to my Facebook page, Julia Black at The Lights on Mum, because that's where I hang out and increasingly are going to be steering and leading this conversation for those that want to think differently, are ready to think differently and have seen they need to think differently. That's where really we can start the conversation. Because for me, that's what Explorium is. It's the start of a conversation to do things differently. Wonderful. Okay. Can we jump into the quick four questions? 
These did freak me out a little bit, I have to say. <laughs> You've answered a lot of these, I think, through just the uh, the narrative of the, the conversation. But what principles do you stand by? Uh, authenticity and honesty are my core ones. Okay, they're good. The hard choices you've had to make it might have been tough at the time, but turned out to be the right decision. The hard choice was to close down Explorium in the form of the physical service and go online. But that definitely was the right decision. Okay. Where do you go to discover new ideas? I kind of start intuitively from within, and then I kind of look to the sort of the thinkers who are ahead of their curve. So I'm kind of always looking at, I've got this idea what evidence is out there that supports this has got um, legs? I mean, you are solving a, a massive problem, but what is the one problem worth solving? Yeah, I think it is absolutely giving everybody, children, teenagers and adults, that right to learn in their own unique way so that they can live that authentic life and put mental well-being at the forefront of everything that we do. Okay. If you could return to one day, night, place in history, where, when to do what, to see who? Yeah, I think this this is the one I really, really struggled with because I tend, I'm, I sort of spend much of my time sort of future casting. But I think it would be good to go back to the day before my dad died because he phoned me and we were talking and the, the last kind of words he sort of said to me is he was so excited about what was happening. And he just said, you know, we're never, we keep learning, you know, every day. I'm 76 and I'm still learning. And I think I'd like to just go back to him knowing that that was my last conversation and just extend that. So that was, that would be going back to the 10th of December, 2014, when my dad was still here to just extend that and ask him, and what is the biggest thing, dad, that you learned? Hmm. Yeah, we get a lot of people saying similar things. That's, that's lovely. What's one question no one asks you that you wish they would? Yeah, this one I, I've really struggled with, partly I think because I'm very self-sufficient, <laughs> but I think as a leader and in my most desperate times as a leader, I think it would have been asking me, what can I take off your shoulders? Uh, who's made you reevaluate yourself? Yeah, I think my, my children, for sure. In particular, my daughter, because she meets me kind of, we're both fighters she meets me with equal force and I always go away from those kind of growing and reevaluating kind of how I showed up in that moment. The impossible question that we ask is your advice to someone that's just about to graduate to study that's maybe trying to seek out their purpose and they think they found it. Someone's telling them, forget it, that's impossible. Is to absolutely know that nothing is impossible. Okay. If you just keep on going, persist, persist, persist. It was the mantra I grew up with um, from my father. And also to just get that vision really, really clear and prime it in every day and take one step at a time towards that. But have that rock solid belief that actually nothing is impossible if you keep on going. Okay. Bit of fun. What's your go-to karaoke song? I Will Survive. <laughs> by of, of course. Of, <laughs> what else? Exactly. <laughs> During lockdown, we've all been watching more Netflix, Amazon, Apple series, but which uh, documentary or film would you recommend people watch? Well, it's actually a series and it's Orphan Black, which I think throws up some interesting ethical kind of conversations. It's all around cloning. And the reason I loved it is because one actress played, I think, about 13 different characters we counted, and she was different and unique in every single one of them, despite being a clone. So I think it was kind of a really interesting concept to explore. 
Okay. So I haven't heard of that, so we'll check it out. What book would you recommend we give uh, the listeners that submit the best comments on Instagram or on the website? I've got two books. One is in every everyone culture. So it's a business, it's kind of a, a sort of a, a book about how our future businesses are going to become and need to become these, these environments where everyone grows and everyone culture becoming a deliberately developmental organization. So I wanted to give you an alternative and that is The Surrender Experiment by Michael Singer. Ah, someone else recommended that a few weeks ago. I think it's really important because that's been my big life lesson in the last few years. It's like, how do we make the impossible possible? Is you have to surrender and accept what comes your way and really vision and tune into, yeah, where our path takes us. Ah, great. I haven't picked it up to read it yet, so I need to go and do that. So, okay, that's note to self. A final question, who should we interview next? I would love to send Gillian Burke your way, who is a dear friend of mine. She is an environmentalist. She's a um, filmmaker. She's a TV presenter here in the UK. And she's just, I think, would be a joy for, for you to, you know, to have a conversation with and has just got an interesting life. And that has led her to, I think, be a very, very important voice in terms of environmental, you know, our future, in terms of where we're heading. Wonderful. Okay. Well, we'll be following up on that. Just before I just wrap up, you mentioned that you've been doing a lot of work on neurohacking and your own mind. So all the stuff that you've been doing through your life has been very external focused, helping individuals, people, families, society you've been looking inward and trying to improve yourself. Where did that come from? Yeah, from, I think, reaching, Lights On is like all about learning from the inside out and just reaching, I, I, did, I ran out of answers as to why I wasn't getting Explorium to take grip in the mainstream way. And so I had to start looking inside. When I went online, it kind of really flushed up, I guess, my edges because, and I had to just start, change you know I had to become a different person in order to be able to kind of go no this is it this is my purpose I am going to make the impossible happen I am going to be part of disrupting education and so I just really had to start looking at what is going on in my subconscious that is stopping this and so I sought coaching and and just got in there and and learned how to now do it and that's what I do with parents because what I have learned to discover is that anything is possible if we if we become the thinker of our own thoughts. Where did you go to discover the tools and the techniques and the, or, or to find the coaches to help you make that change? Again, they kind of came my way as I started to sort of open up and listen. So one of my business coaches is James Wedmore, who, you know, I just saw a, an ad from his. And Dr. Shannon Irvin is another coach who has kind of really helped me neurohack my mind. And I now use her, I'm certified as a neuro coach and I use, that same principle and, and model to work with parents and Fernanda Lind. So I had kind of these three sort of people who were guiding me just to go deeper and deeper into what is the thinking in my subconscious that was primed in when I was that little girl up that tree saying, I can't do it. I haven't got what it takes to do it. And I've had to just literally bust that thought away. And now I can't even access it. It's just like, I absolutely can do it. I am doing it. And I'm now kind of priming in, yeah, sort of three years ahead, five years ahead of where I'm at now. Wow. Amazing. 
Well, we really look forward to seeing the journey of uh, your organization, Explorium, and Lights On. And then just so thank you, Julia, for your time and your great answers. And just acknowledge you for, I, I think, uh, an immense sense of, of curiosity, uh, relentless curiosity. And definitely acknowledge you for your tenacity as uh, an accelerator of change and just not giving up. And finally, embracing the unfolding narrative. Because I think a lot of people just accept the stories told. It's been cast. This is what it is. And I think your unwillingness to just accept the, the narrative showed that relentless uh, tenacity of spirit and spirit of adventure to keep seeking out till you found that point, you found your point of purpose. So I'd just like to acknowledge you for that and say, keep up that good work. Thank you very much. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time. Thank you.